Oh, yeah, coming at you live from the CSB studios in Hasbrook Heights, New Jersey on EMTR Radio Network. This is the Passball Show, of course, brought to you by JohnPielli.com, ready to knock out the first version of the Passball Show that is now part of the active 2013 baseball season. And, you know, hopefully you guys have enjoyed, as baseball fans, the beginning of the season, opening weekend, the first couple things going on with this uh this 2013 season, if you're a Mets fan, you're, you're probably a little happy about the start you got off to. A couple wins against the Padres before today's loss. But at the same time, we look at today and really where teams are or where they should be. And I'll tell you, the one thing that I always get into and I always laugh about the fact that people go a little too crazy when it comes to the start of the season and what they expect out of it and what they see in day one is going to be indicative of of what you're going to see for the rest of the season, there, there wasn't any more of an example of, of that point than to see what you saw opening night last Sunday with the Texas Rangers playing the Houston Astros. Could there be any more of a mismatch on paper when you're looking at these two teams and you're looking at the direction where both of these teams are going in? You see the Astros, their first game in the American League, you know, the home opener, Minute Maid Park, the whole thing. And you expect the Rangers to just beat them up. You expect the Rangers to get on Bud Norris, knock them out within the first couple innings and have an easy victory because the Rangers are superior to the Houston Astros. And you've heard me before. I said the Astros could lose as much as probably 115 games. I got them losing 111 to start off the season. But when it comes down to it, the games are still played on the field. And you see the Astros going out there, getting a couple big hits early, a home run. They end up winning the first game pretty easily against these Texas Rangers who, you know, everybody says are still good. I don't think they're as good as they were a couple years ago, but that's not the point. The point is that you look at the results of a couple little games over the course of a whole 162-game season, and we say that it's going to be different that all of a sudden your predictions, what you said that what the beginning of the season was going to look like, whether you thought the Astros were going to lose as many games as you thought or you thought the Rangers were going to win as many games as you thought, all changes based on a couple games. And my, my issue with that is got to let the whole season play out. you got to let the whole thing kind of take shape before you start going crazy and making these insane predictions over what you think is going to happen over the course of a season like this. And my, my issue, and I've said it before, is that we all jump to when it comes to when it comes to starting out the season, and we jump on the bandwagon of teams that get off to a little bit better of a start than are expect you know than expected. There's no reason to expect the Mets after winning the first two games against the San Diego Padres to go out there and have a crazy season. This isn't the 1969 Mets where nobody's going to anticipate them being competitive and them all of a sudden winning some games. Uh, listen, I enjoyed opening day, being down at City Field on Monday, watching the Mets beat up on the Padres, Colin Calgill's grand slam, the whole thing. I enjoyed it. I, I had a good time out there. But it's, it's, it's a long season. And nobody's going to tell me that the Mets, as much as I'd love to see it, nobody's going to tell me that the Mets are going to all of a sudden be this surprise shock team. And I'm sorry for all EMF fans out there like myself. I love the team as much as you do if you're a Mets fan, but I don't see it going, going in this weird direction. And yes, this is the time of year where we can go out there and be excited and hopefully look at the glass as half full as opposed to half empty. But the bottom line is you still got to look at the other teams in the league and the fact that the Mets are going to be playing the Philadelphia Phillies, the Atlanta Braves, the Washington Nationals 18 times each this season. And that's that, that to me is not uh, good, good enough to expect them to go out there and shock some people. Yes, I'm excited about Matt Harvey. I'm excited about uh, the, the look of this team as far as being a futuristic type of ball club. But I'm not going to jump on a bandwagon and say that this team is back after watching two games. And I'm also not going to go the other way and say that I was on the bandwagon until they lost today. Because today is just a game that you lose. I don't think I, the Mets had a couple opportunities in this game, the 2-1 to one loss to the San Diego Padres this afternoon at City Field, allowing the Padres to salvage the third game of this series. 
But listen, you got a day game after a night game after you went out there and looked like gangbusters for the first two games. I'm not going to hold them accountable. I'm not going to say that, oh, you know, they're not trying. I mean, that's the craziest thing you could say right now. And I know I've said some crazy things, but if I went out there and said that the, the Mets were on a path to go to the World Series and all of a sudden gave it up after today, then, then, then I don't know what I'm talking about. And, and, and I, just, I just don't get the whole, like, the whole season starts and all of a sudden everybody's preseason predictions and what they thought was going to happen goes right out the window. I mean, teams are projected to be at certain levels for a reason. Now, it's, it doesn't work out like all of a sudden you play a game or two and all of a sudden it's your new seeding. The team that's 1-0 and is all of a sudden winning the World Series. It doesn't work that way. And, that, and that's the, unfortunately the thing that it bothers me probably the most, not only about baseball, but about all professional sports. It's all about what did you do for me today? What did you do for me in this one day is going to determine how you feel about a team or an organization. I mean, you got the Yankees who went out there, lost their first two to Boston. They're going to try to avoid getting swept at home against the Boston Red Sox. But I'm still not saying that the Yankees are going to be a 100-loss team. But some fans that look at this game, and it's either, it's either we're winning the World Series or we're losing every game. And I think fans just need to take a step back and back off for a minute and just realize that this, this season – you, there's going to be so many ups and downs in it, no matter what team you are, whether it's the Houston Astros and you had your one big up in the opening day win, the opening night win against the Texas Rangers. It's not, it's not that easy to just, just go in there and say that you are as good as your last day's starting pitcher because there's so much more baseball to play, and I, I can't tell you how it's going to turn out. You know, We've talked and you've heard me mention a bunch of times on this, on this radio station, on this radio network, my show, my blog, about you know, where is that team last year that was the Oakland Athletics or the Baltimore Orioles or two years ago the Arizona Diamondbacks or three years ago the uh, San Diego Padres up until the last week of the season. Where is that team going to come from? The problem is is we're not, we don't know where that team's going to come from. But all of a sudden, you know, you went there last year and everybody's supporting the Baltimore Orioles. Everybody's supporting the, the Oakland Athletics this year because of what they did last year. And it usually doesn't work out that way. Nobody had those teams competing and doing what they did this year last season when they were doing what they were doing. Nobody had the faith in them coming into the season. Everybody had the, the A's finishing at the bottom of the American League West. Everybody had the Baltimore Orioles finishing at the bottom of the American League East. Nobody had that kind of faith to all of a sudden become what they became last year. But now, all of a sudden, everybody wants to just say they're legitimate contenders and have them as favorites to win their respective division. Now, they may, those people that say that may be right. They may be. But they also may be wrong, and I'm going to lean towards the latter on it to, to expect, particularly with the way both of those teams won games last year and over the course of that full season, in their last at-bat all the time, having flawless pitching, whether it was the Orioles' bullpen or the athletic starting rotation. You know, they painted, and in both of those teams at the same time painted the picture of what a perfect season essentially is going to look like. When, when, when you don't make a mistake and you win every single game that's close, every single one-run game, every single game at home that comes to the last at-bat, those two teams won. And I can't, you can't expect that to repeat itself this season. And I, I, just, I just don't see it. But back to my point before about that team, whatever that team's going to be, that surprise shock team that's going to be the team that we had no faith in coming into this season that's going to go out there and win a bunch of games and surprise not only me but everybody else. And we're going to say all of a sudden that team's a contender. We just don't know what team it is. And, and I'm going to be random. And I picked random teams that I thought had some upside. The Pittsburgh Pirates, the Seattle Mariners, even the San Diego Padres. Remember the Padres, the team that played the Mets over the last three games, are, are without Chase Headley. And Chase Headley had a phenomenal season last year, winning the gold glove, silver slugger. He was a phenomenal third baseman for the San Diego Padres last year. And he's not in the lineup. He's out for a while. They all, they're also missing Yasmani Grandel, the catcher who has some power, but you know maybe a little bit artificially enhanced 
but he's serving his 50-game Pence suspension, so they're going to be without him for a while. I think this team could put some stuff together and maybe be competitive. But where where is that surprise team going to be? I, I'm fascinated about it because I think you, know, you look at it in a lot of different ways that it could be essentially anybody. You know, Would it be a stretch to say that it's the Houston Astros or the Miami Marlins? Yes, I think that would be a little crazy if you went out there and tried to make a case why either one of those these two teams are going to be postseason contenders this season. But I, I, don't, I don't know where that, mid, that middle team that we don't have a lot of faith in is. And that's what's exciting about this season. You got all the teams with the expectations. You got the big the the Washington Nationals with a big chip on their shoulder. Like they have to prove that they are the elite team, that they are this team that's so unstoppable and so stacked and are going to go out there and win twice as many games as they won last year. And I, to be honest, that's what people are thinking. That they, they think the Washington Nationals are going to win more games than they play this season just because of what they did last season. But where was the faith in them? Where was all this belief in the Washington Nationals last year? Yes, there were a lot of people out there that saw the Nationals as a sleeper, a team that could compete for the wild card. But the, the amount of people that predicted that this team would go out there and win 98 games and the NL East are in the minority. And because they won the division last year, they are such a lock to do it again this year. And, and I think you very easily discount the Atlanta Braves and the Philadelphia Phillies. The Philadelphia Phillies coming off a one-down season. And I, and I understand everybody talks about the Phillies, and they talk about the age, and they talk about how you know Roy Halladay is struggling to hit 90 miles an hour, and Howard's older and Utley's older. But I think this team has some more fight in it. And I do see this team being very competitive, and I do think they have as much of a chance to win the NL East as the Washington Nationals. And you throw in the Braves, who I think did a good job in kind of circumventing the the talent field and kind of trying to make up for what they lost last year with Chipper Jones. They also lost Martin Prado, but it got them Justin Upton. You add B.J. Upton to the mix, and I think this is a balanced offensive attack. And I can see the Braves and the Phillies both giving the Nationals a hard time this year. So everybody that's out there just guaranteeing that the Washington Nationals are going to start hanging up NLE's banners across that, that, that new stadium in, uh, in Washington, D.C., I, I just don't think it's going to be that easy. And that, the NL East, in my opinion, is going to be very competitive from the beginning to the end. And I think that's something that has to be looked at. But just to, to kind of finish up my point on this whole thing, yes, this is the time of year where every team has hope. This is the, the part of the season where every fan of every team that, you know, every fan that loves baseball and, lo- you know, roots for a certain team feels that that team has a legitimate chance to maybe compete, maybe surprise, maybe win the whole thing. And I, and I don't want to go out there and just say that for, for some teams there's no chance. But listen, you look at the first couple of games of the season at a different level than teams that are expected to go out there and potentially win it all. And Houston Astros winning their first game certainly gives their fans a lot of hope. And, if, and one thing I do want to give credit to is, is the Houston Astro fans who at Minute Maid Park Sunday night on opening day did a good job of almost filling that ballpark. And for what the expectation is of what people think that this team's going to be and how historically bad this team may look to end up being, I give their fans a ton of credit for going out there and supporting their team. And if they could go out there and win a couple series, maybe stick around a 500 mark for a little while, or even finish strong, I think that's going to be a huge step in the right direction for that franchise. And just because their roster looks as bad as it does, doesn't mean that they won't surprise some people and win a couple more games than people think. I don't think they're going to win any more than 51 games. I had them 51 and 111. If you want to check out my 30 to 1 MLB countdown on mtrmedia.com and, of course, johnpielli.com, you'll see that I had no faith in the Astros. But this is the time of year where everybody feels like they got a chance. So don't take that the other way and say that because the, the, uh, the Boston Red Sox beat the New York Yankees, the Boston Red Sox are going to win the AL East and the Yankees are going to lose 100 games. I just think everybody gets lets their fandom kind of get to them and they go a little nuts over stuff like that. And I, I just totally disagree with it. you got to let the season play out. Let a couple weeks happen first. 
Let, let even the first month of the season before we start ranking teams. Because a lot's going to happen now that ain't going to happen about two months, three months down the road. And certainly ain't going to happen six months down the road. There's going to be teams that are going to stick around that we feel have no business being there. And remember, all I got to do is refer to last year with the Athletics and the Orioles. And, of course, they were the exception that nobody thought had any chance to compete and do the job that they ended up doing. And they ended up winning. You know, the, the A's win the AL West. The Orioles win the wild card and beat the Yankees. I'm sorry, and, uh, you know, end, end up almost beating the Yankees in the, in the ALDS. No, nobody saw that happening. But that's what's exciting about this game, and that's why I think that you know you really do gotta believe that there's certain teams that have a legitimate chance that you may not believe in up until now. But listen, we would take our first break of the day. Got some good guests lined up today. Former Major League catcher Don Slaw will be joining us about five thirty, about five forty-five, maybe a little later. We're gonna reach out to former Indians manager and Major League outfielder Mike Hargrove. So uh, lots going on. We're gonna take a quick break. We'll be back with a lot more stuff going on in the past ball show, MTR Radio Network. We will be back in a little bit. But before we do that, we got to make sure we get our ads running right. In the meantime, I'm going to talk a little bit more about the Mets' loss today, two to one to the San Diego Padres. And I'm not going to I'm not going to go nuts and say that they, that it's it's totally uh, totally listless. I don't think this was a, a performance that they didn't go. They didn't go out there and get the job done. I just think that it's a, your typical day after night game. You got the Padres, who I think did play tough over the first couple games, even though the results weren't there. Uh, I think I think this is a situation where you really had to look at the Padres, probably feeling like they wanted this game a little more than the Mets, and that's pretty much what happened. So you know, on that note, we're gonna we're gonna go ahead and we're gonna take our first break of the day. You know, eventually. And we will be back. Don Slot. Hey, what's up, everybody? This is James Flippin from the Turnpike Throwdown and MTRRadio.com. I'd like to tell you about a place I like to go, the Cranberry Bagel Barn, located at 64 Main Street in historic Cranberry, New Jersey. They offer the freshest New York bagels, boar's head cold cuts, homemade soup, all you can handle. By the way, they've got you covered if you need catering work done. Remember to stop by Cranberry Bagel Barn right across the street from the post office. In Cranberry, New Jersey, they've got the best bagels in central New Jersey and, again, can handle all your catering needs. Go on down to Cranberry Bagel Barn, 64 Main Street in Cranberry, New Jersey. Hey, everybody. Thursdays are turning out to be a special day at the Hooters of Wayne, New Jersey this summer. We are bringing back our $2 Coors Light Draft Special starting at 7 p.m., but that's just the start. On select Thursdays, we will be graced by the presence of the world-famous Coors Light Girls from now until the end of August. There will be giveaways of shirts, hats, and keychains, courtesy of Coors Light. Also, when you come in on Thursday and enjoy one of our great entrees from the Hooterific menu, you can fill out an entry blank in order to win a free iPad that will be given away on the last Thursday of the month. Don't forget, each and every week we will have a different and exciting Burger of the Week special. Our Mouthful Mondays, Trivia Night Wednesdays, and all the wings you can eat Thursdays are just more great reasons to visit the Hooters of Wayne, New Jersey. There's also our Tuesday night biker night with a live DJ. For more information, go to our website at www.hootersnewjersey.com. We are easily located on Route 23 just south of the Willowbrook Mall. My name's Sarah, and I hope to see you there real soon. Welcome back. Past Bell Show, MTR Radio Network. Of course, this is John Pielli. Kind of uh, getting ready, man. We, uh, we've got a lot of stuff going on in the program today. And what I, what I want to do is I want to kind of get into a little bit of what was going on or what people were thinking over the last couple of days. And actually, we're going to put that on hold and we're taking our first call of the day. It's going to be former Major League catcher Don Slott. Hey, hey Don, it's John Pialli, Pass Ball Show, MTR Radio Network. Thanks for having a couple minutes today, my friend. Okay, that's fine. Hey, welcome aboard, man. First of all, uh, listen, man, uh, you know, looks like you got some, some good stuff going on. Uh, you know, t tell us a little bit about what you're up to nowadays. I'm just running a software company. All right, man. 
So, listen, man, coming back, you know, you obviously had a nice playing career. You had a chance to play for a lot of different organizations. Uh, tell, tell us a little bit about your time, first of all, with the Kansas City Royals, the team that went out there and kind of took their real chan first chances on you. You had some good seasons up there. Tell us a little bit about your, your early time with the Kansas City Royals, culminating with your postseason appearance in 1984. Well, I was very fortunate with, uh, to get drafted by Kansas City. Um, they took me straight to big league camp. Uh, Daryl Porter had gone to St. Louis, uh, which opened up uh, catching position for John Watson and Jamie Quirk. And um, I did pretty well my first couple of years there and made it to the big leagues in my third year. Now, as you move forward, you obviously get a chance to play in a postseason in 1984. Of course, you know, it's a, it's a series didn't turn out too well for the Royals as they lost to the uh, Detroit Tigers. Tell us a little bit about making your, uh, your, your first opportunity to play in a postseason at such a young age. Well, we had, we had such a great team, you know, with George Brett, Frank White, and Willie Wilson, um, uh, Willie Mays-Akins. We had a lot of good players on our team, and um, they were very competitive for years uh, in 84. Uh, you know, we lost in the playoffs to the Detroit Tigers, which were a very strong team with Alan Trammell and Lou Whitaker and Darrell Evans. and uh, They just had a very strong lineup and a strong pitching staff. Uh, but, you know, they followed up the following year. The year after I, I got traded, they ended up winning the World Series in 85. Yeah, now that actually brings me to my next question. Now, do, do, do you feel like you kind of missed out on something there? Do you kind of wish you hung around for one more year, you get a chance to win the World Series with them? Uh, definitely. I wish I could have stuck around. But uh, they felt like they needed a veteran catcher in, uh, uh, and with their young pitching staff with Saber Hagen and Buddy Black and uh, Mark Gubazov. And they went out and got Jim Sundberg, uh, which made me expendable, and I ended up going to Texas. Now, you got a chance to play a couple of years with Texas, but then you move on to the New York Yankees in 1988 and 1989. And me, me, as, me as a young fan, I could actually remember that time frame pretty well. It's kind of when I first started to really watch the game. I do remember seeing a lot of Yankee games at that time. Tell us a little bit about your stay in the Yankees and playing for a team that, you know, unfortunately, with as good of a history as it has, just wasn't real good at that time. No, it really wasn't. It was really tough for the Yankees to get pitchers to show up there. Um, our opening day starter was Tommy John at 41 years old. Uh, but our lineup was as strong as any lineup in either league uh, with uh, Don Mattingly and Dave Winfield and Ricky Henderson, um, uh, Willie Randolph, uh, Pagli Rulo is at third. Um, so, I mean, Claudel Washington in center field. So we had great players in the lineup, um, but we just didn't have the pitching to really compete. In fact, the year that Billy Martin took over, um, you know, we were in first place at, at uh, halfway point near the All-Star break, and uh, we just couldn't hold on. Yeah, now now it brings me over to, to playing for a guy like Billy Martin, and in my opinion, I think Billy Martin is one of one of the better managers to ever be in this game. For what Not only for what he did, like with the Yankees and all those stints, but for the fact that he seemed to make every team he managed better. Tell us a little bit about your, your opportunity and what you saw from playing for Billy Martin. Well, he, he was a great motivator and a, a, a strategician, I guess you would say. Uh, he always had certain plays that he liked to use in certain situations. Uh, but basically, Billy and I would fight every time we lost and, uh, and argue about everything, but he only argued with one guy, and that was me. Whether a pitcher made a mistake or somebody made an infield, uh, Billy would come to the clubhouse, and Billy and I would go back and forth, and everybody got the message that he wanted to get across, but he only yelled at one guy, and that was me. Wow, that's pretty interesting. Now, now you know, yeah. you think that that did probably a good job of keeping the the pitchers probably more focused on what they did as opposed to having to answer to Billy Martin all the time. They could kind of just get with you and figure out what the next game plan's got to be as opposed to just dealing with Billy Martin. Well, I think Billy did this uh, just about every with every team that he managed. Uh, I just happened to the guy. He was the guy that he knew I could take it, and I would I would dish it back when it wasn't deserved. And uh, so that was kind of his his style of, of yelling at the team. He was yelling at one one person about different situations. Yeah, no question. Once again, this is John Pialli. I'm here with former Major League catcher Don Slott. Now, after the Yankees, you get a chance to play for some very good teams in the early part of the 90s with the Pittsburgh Pirates. You know, you, you, end, you end up uh, kind of being in a little platoon with Mike LaValliere, and 
you know, the team ends up going to the uh, the NLCS three years in a row. Uh, tell us a, bit, a little bit about your time with the Pittsburgh Pirates. Well, again, I, I, I came into a great situation with Barry Bonds blooming and uh, Bobby Bonilla and Andy Van Slyke um, and Jay Bell, Jeff King, uh, a lot of good players, but we also had very good pitching with the Pittsburgh Pirates, and Jim Leland was a master at getting the most out of our uh, bullpen, uh, which didn't have any real big names, but it had one of the best uh, statistics in the league. Um, and I think a lot of that is due to Jim putting guys in position where they can succeed. Yeah, and he absolutely did. Now, I, I do want to get into this a little bit. After 1992, of course, uh, Bonds leaves as a free agent. The team kind of breaks itself down a little bit. Obviously, must have been a little bit of a bummer for you sticking around. Obviously, you're going to go out there, do the best you can, try to help this team win. But you obviously saw a shift from a team that was very competitive and you knew had a chance to win the World Series to a team that was all of a sudden rebuilding again. Tell us a little bit about the transition from the, the Pirates teams that were winning to the Pirates teams that were rebuilding. Well, it was, it was a function of money. Is uh, You know, these Barry Bonds and Bobby Bonilla and Doug Drabeck and John Smiley, I mean, we just had so many free agents that uh, Pittsburgh just couldn't hold on to them. So we started trying to uh, fill in with, um, you know, Kirk Gibson and guys older in their career to try to stay competitive. Uh, just couldn't do it, just too many guys had left the left the team and moved on to other teams. That uh, so then they started trying to rebuild within the system, and you got to be very lucky to come up with you know somebody in your organization like Barry Bonds that can basically carry the team. Yeah, no question about it. Once again, it's John Pielli. I'm here with former Major League catcher Don Slott. Now, one thing that kind of kind of, kind of impresses me you managed you managed to be a very consistent hitter throughout your career you finished with a 283 average uh you, you know culminates in 45 tell us a little bit about your approach from the plate and really kind of what you what you look to do on an everyday basis as a hitter and uh you know in, in all the lineups that you were in well i i got better as i as i got older even though i got slower and, and not quite as strong i got better because i i uh, figured out the swing a little bit better um when i first came up with the kansas city royals it just kind of just walked up and did. Um, my first eight years in the league, I hit about uh, 269 was my batting average. In my last eight years, I hit over 300. So uh, I got better not by getting stronger or, or running faster. I got better by learning and and uh, look at learning the mechanics of the swing and getting an approach up at the plate um, that allowed me to cover more speeds and more locations. Yeah, now you, I hear I hear all the time from catchers that obviously you, you want defense to kind of be the number one part of your game as far as dealing with pitchers and stuff like that. How are you able to balance handling a pitching staff with being a consistent hitter? I mean, you did hit, you know, like like I said, you hit 283 for your career. You're a very consistent hitter. How are you able to balance your hitting with what you did as far as calling the game and handling yourself behind the plate? Well, I think I became better uh, calling a game as I learned more about hitting and how, and, uh, how to adjust to different speeds and locations. Uh, at the end of my career, especially when I was with the Pittsburgh Pirates and we had that pitching staff, um, it helped me a lot to understand you know, what Terry Pendleton was doing up at the plate and what he could hit and what he couldn't hit in certain situations. Um, so the hitting actually made me a better catcher uh, by learning more and talking with Don Mattingly and Bill Buckner and those guys, um, those two guys probably helped me most about hitting, and that also made me a better catcher. Now, now when, it, when it came to catching, did, was there anybody you kind of tried to emulate uh, behind the plate? Was there anybody that you kind of followed their game and the way they played and the way they kind of deal well, with the pitchers and stuff like that? Well, Johnny Bench was, was my idol growing up. In fact, the first time I met him in spring training with the Kansas City Royals, he, he saw me walking walking near him, he came over and goes, kid, it's all on the feet. You can't throw till your feet are set. And, um, I mean, it was very nice of him to come up and talk to me. Man, no question about it. Listen, Don, I want to thank you for having some time today. Hopefully I could get you on the show sometime in the near future. I appreciate talking to you today. Sure. All right, thank take you. care. Take care. Yeah, that was Don Slott, former Major League catcher. Of course, he had a, he had a very good career. And if you look at, you you know, you, you don't look at Don Slott amongst the, the list of, like, the, the best offensive catchers, but he did hit 345 in 1992. 
and he had a 283 career average. And I made sure I brought that up a couple times because because here was a guy that did kind of play more of like that platoon type role. And, you know, he's remembered probably in my eyes more of being in that platoon with Mike Lavalier, the left-hand hitter with, with the Pirates, you know, in the Jim Leland teams of the early 90s. But I think he, he did a he, he did a phenomenal job. And, uh, and you know, unfortunately, he was with the Yankees when they weren't really that good. And, you know, unfortunately, they were still kind of uh, shipping a lot of veterans in and out there looking to try to get a little bit of a spark. And Slot was there for a couple of years when the Yankees, unfortunately, weren't that good. He did get a chance to play for Billy Martin, which I thought was a pretty good job. But a couple other things about Don Slott, um, you know, he was, you know, like I mentioned, in the postseason four times in uh, 1984 with the Kansas City Royals and in 1990 and 1992 with the Pittsburgh Pirates. Uh, he singled in his first two at-bats off of John Tudor in his, in his first game with the Royals in 1982 and was the hitting coach for the Detroit Tigers in the 2006 season. So some tidbits about Don Slott, and, uh, you know, great having him on the show today. But, you know, as we kind of move into our next thing, probably in about maybe five minutes or so, we're going to reach out and try to get a hold of Mike Hargrove. And Mike Hargrove, of course, was the, the former manager of the Indians and the Seattle Mariners and, of course, had a playing career, most notably with the Texas Rangers in the late 70s, early 80s. So that, that's going to be pretty cool to get into. But, you know, as we're, we're, we're kind of into the season now, like we mentioned before, you know, I'm, I'm a little little off talking about, you know, the done, I'm done with talking about how, you know, people get all bent out of shape over the first couple games of the season. And if your team's good, you know, the Phillies start out 0-2, oh, my God, their team is so terrible. You know, stop it already. Let, 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 let the season play out a little bit. And, you know, before you start jumping to conclusions and going nuts over, uh, over you know, silly things that happen in the first, you know, little part of the season. But, I did get into a couple of my articles. We talked a little bit about Johan Santana. And Johan Santana, of course, has a second operation this past uh, Tuesday to repair that uh, torn capsule muscle in his, uh, in his left shoulder. Apparently it was a different spot, but the bottom line is the guy's not going to be able to pitch. He's out for the season and you know, very well may never pitch again. But a lot of people get on the whole Santana situation saying that he didn't live up to his contract. And, you know, it, it, it's difficult to live up to the kind of contract that a guy like Gohan Santana signs. He goes out there, he gets his six-year, was it, $137.5 million contract with the Mets. And the Mets are at the time are considering, uh, you know, how, how much of a World Series contender they are at the time. And obviously the whole team kind of fell apart after that. The 2007 season was before Santana got there. They had the historic September collapse, which was the beginning of the end. Uh, but, you know, Johan Santana did two things that I don't think anybody could ever take away from him. And that's why I'm always going to remember him as a Mets fan, whether he has pitched his last game with the Mets or not. And obviously, uh, you're probably about uh, a million to one that he's probably pitched his last game for the New York Mets. But lo looking at it, I mean, he obviously threw the no-hitter last year. And, and I think you get into the you get into the point where you start to you start to a analyze how much that means to an organization that hadn't had a no hitter in what, what did we talk in fifty one years something like that you want to count sixty two as the first season so you know the Mets were essentially in their fifty first season uh, this past season when uh, Santana goes out there June first throws a no hitter against the St Louis Cardinals and and you may you may want to say hey what is is that enough is that enough to kind of uh, give the give the guy a pass for unfortunately these last couple injuries and a, a Mets career that numbers wise was not really worthy of a lot of accolades and I get that but the Mets didn't have a more important game in the 2008 season than the one that he pitched on that Saturday against the, the Florida Marlins and he went out there and 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 pitched the best game that you could have imagined. And I think it's a situation where uh, he needs, he deserves some credit for going out there on short rest, throwing a, a three hit shutout against the Florida Marlins that season. And, and you find out later that he was pitching hurt. He had a torn meniscus. And I think that's, that that's something that not too many people even want to talk about because everybody says, Hey, Johan Santana is soft because he had the two major uh, shoulder injuries. And, and, and I beg to differ. I disagree with that uh, very much because I, here, here's a guy that could have easily said his season was over. I mean, a torn meniscus is not something that pitchers are expected to pitch on, you know, let alone walk. 
You know what I mean? I mean so here's a, here's a guy that was obviously in a lot of pain and decides to pitch on short rest in that situation. And not only that, but pitch one of the best games of his career, going out there throwing a three-hit shutout against the Florida Marlins, saving the Mets season for another day. And, of course, we all know what happened after that, the unfortunate situation where the Mets – had their season on the line with one more game. And, you know, I was obviously out there 2008, the last game, uh, regular season game at Shea Stadium. And the Mets lost a, a heartbreaker to the, the same Marlins and end up having their postseason hopes taken away again. But it wasn't for a lack of what Johan Santana did. And that first season was by far the best season that he had with the Mets. He won 16 games. He had a an ace type of season unfortunately he was unable to duplicate that in the next five seasons so i do you know i do want to give this guy some credit while everybody's out there trying to bash him and it's unfortunate that this will be the second time in in what was a six-year contract that paid him 137 and a half million dollars that he's going to miss the entire season and i will say this and you can get on me if you want i don't care but Johan Santana always has a, a place in my heart. He's a, he's, a, he's, he's a gamer, and yet the injury to his shoulder is unfortunate. And for that, he did not live up to his contract and what was expected out of him when he signed that big deal with the, the New York Mets to stick around for the next six seasons. And yes, the six seasons as a total can be looked at as a disappointment. But here's, here's a guy who I think did everything he could and it's a shame it's the risk that you take with a pitcher when you sign him for that length of a contract that his arms essentially going to fall off and that's really what happened here and I think the Detroit Tigers have to think about that with Justin Verlander and his extension the Seattle Mariners have to think about that with King Felix and his contract and I think those are things that really have to be looked at in a, in a way that you never know when the pitcher so-called arm is just going to fall off. And I think all these pitchers, all these teams that have these pitchers signed to these huge contracts have to think about what happened here with the Mets and Johan Santana and realize it could happen to them and it could happen to their guy. And I really do think that that's something that has to be looked at. But right now we're going to reach out and, you know, we always take a risk here on the pass ball show. Uh, dialing out, and you never know if we're going to get somebody's voicemail. But right now we're going to try to get a hold of former Cleveland Indians manager Mike Hargrove. And obviously, hello, hey, is this Mike? This is Mike. Hey, how you doing? John Pialli, Pass Ball Show on TR Radio Network. Thanks for having a couple minutes today. Hey, you bet, John. Ah, man. Now listen, man. Uh, obviously, you know, you you had it. You had a good playing career, and then you you parlayed it into a, a pretty successful manager career. Uh, most notably with the Cleveland Indians. Uh, let's 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 start out by talking about the Cleveland Indians teams you managed. You obviously had a chance to get to the World Series in 1995 and 1997. Uh, what what's the first thing you really have to say about your time in Cleveland as a manager? Well, it was a fun time. I mean, obviously it was exciting. You know, it was the first time in 40 years that the Indians had been to the postseason. So you know, I I felt a lot of satisfaction out of being able to do that. Uh, Unfortunately, too, that I had a lot of good players, and, uh, and uh, it was just it was a it was a fun time. It was it was a good time to compete, and those guys knew how to compete, so it was a lot of fun. Yeah, no question about it. And obviously, you had a chance to maybe a little bit in the right place at the right time as you as you get to ma- manage those teams with you know Albert Bell and Manny Ramirez. How did it feel as as you saw this team starting to really come together for the first time? You know, how, how did, how did, well, you know. Well, it felt good. I mean, you know, obviously, um, anybody has to be in the right place at the right time. That always helps. Um, you know, our scouts and our, our minor league people, the people have done a really good job with guys like Ramirez and Tommy, Bell, and people like that. Uh, you know, Brian Giles we had at one time, and, and uh, Sean Casey, people like that, that, that they did a tremendous job on made our jobs in the big, in the big leagues a lot easier. Um, and... Uh, you know, you can see it coming. You know, the first, I think, anything any of us really had that we had something special. We knew it was, it was good, but we didn't. I don't think early on realized how special it could be. But the first anything we had of that, uh, you know, we 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 heard other teams around the league starting to comment on, on what a good nucleus of young players that we had, and uh, and John Hart and 
might be Daniel Dodd and Mark Shapiro and myself. I think we were smart enough to realize that, that it was going to take time to, to develop that to where we could, you know, be in position to be able to contend, you know, on a yearly basis. Um, and so we needed to take it slow rather than, than trying to keep trying to short circuit or shortcut the, the process. And, you know, that cake is going to take it, the time it needs to bake is the time it needs to bake. It's the same way with a good young young team. You've got to allow them the chance to be able to to, uh, to come into their own as players and as as a team And before you start trying to add pieces to it to, to get it over the hump. And, and we did that successfully when we wait until we could add Eddie Murray and Dennis Martinez or Hershiser, people like that, that had been had been on winners and, and knew how to win and what it took to win, you know, in the 162-game season. Yeah. And, uh, you know, when we added them, it was uh, it was just uh, icing on the cake and it took off. No, it absolutely did. Now, now you met, you mentioned before about the, the history of the Cleveland Indians and, you know, having it be so many years before it, you know, since they, they last won an AL pennant. Tell, take us back a little bit to the 1995 season and how, how that unfolds. You know, you mentioned about getting the right veteran players to kind of push this team over the top. Uh, yeah, you obviously had to have some confidence. Go, you know, you know, not only going into that season, but get going into the postseason. But t- tell us a little bit about how, how how this team kind of just just came together and really kind of hit all cylinders going towards the end of that season. Well, it really, it really, you know, started. Uh... You know, the building process started back in, in, in 1992. Um, we were able to, to acquire, you know, guys like Kenny Austin and people like that that really helped out. Um, in 94 was probably the season that, that really took off for us, convinced us that it was time that we, we had a really good chance to win. Uh, we It was a, sh- a strike-shortened season, and on August 12th, when the, you know, strike took effect, we were a game and a half behind the White Sox and, and playing really good baseball at the time. Um, and then uh, then went into, you know, really a, a strike short in 95 season, or strike, you know, the, the spring training was shortened because the, because the strike lasted so long. Uh, and uh, we went, it was a 144-game schedule, I believe, John, and, and we ended up winning 100 games out of the 144 we played. I, you know, a lot of people don't talk about that, but, but the winning percentage that year was was uh, you know right up there with you know among the best in all of baseball, you know, in the history of baseball as far as as uh, win loss percentage. Um, and I you know I'll never forget uh, Jim Tomey catching the, the pop foul at third base uh, to end the ball game to, when we clinched the division. Of course we were way up in you know in the division, but uh, until you clinch it, you're still a little nervous. And uh, feeling uh, feeling you know almost the, the same. The, feeling like you were a real proud father that <laughs> these guys had really done, you know, had achieved the goal of, of you know, that you'd set, you know, for them and yourselves to get to the postseason and, and, and eventually get to the World Series. But, you know, first things first, to get to the postseason and really be the first postseason uh, in 40 years for the Indians, it was, a, it was a very proud and satisfying moment. But I really felt good for the players because they really had, had – uh, you know, busted their humps all year long to, to play as well as they played. Yeah, no question about it. And, of course, you were in that World Series with the Atlanta Braves and the Braves winning their one World Series after all those division titles that year. But I'm sure, I'm sure, and, and, and listen, this is obviously a question that I have to you. Uh, the 1997 season, you end up winning the pennant again. You go up against a uh, Florida Marlins team that you guys were heavily favored against. Uh, it, it probably had to be a little more disappointing losing that series as opposed to the first one against the Braves. Well, yeah, it, it, obviously the way we you know lose in the 11th or 12th inning of the seventh game of the series after taking the two-one lead in the ninth inning uh, in Game Seven, the disappointing. But uh, you know, a lot of people that year did not uh, did not pick us to, to to get to the World Series at all, and, and I'm not sure. You know, you said we were heavily favorites. Over the Marlins, I'm not sure that we were, to tell you the truth. <laughs> I'd have to go back to check, but they had a lot of good players. They, they beefed up their ball club with a lot of free agents, and Aaron Dalton, and, you know, and people like that. And, and uh, so, uh, um, you know, I don't know that, that we were heavily favored, but I thought we played a very good series. It was kind of a wild series. It went all the way from 75-degree from, uh, weather to snow in Cleveland and, and uh, everything in between. Uh, but it was uh, it was the fun series. I mean, the first the first one in '95 
you know, you want to win it and you and you play to win it, uh, but it's almost it's such uncharted territory and everything is so much different than it is even in the ALCS or even ALDS as far as the atmosphere and the amount of media that's around and the attention that's, that's, uh, that's paid uh, to your ball club and to yourself. That, uh, that all of us, uh, you know, all of us first-timers, uh, it was a different deal, and it was a little bit of a struggle to, to get through that. And, and uh, 97 was a lot easier to deal with because you knew what to expect. Yeah, no question about it. Once again, this is John Pielli. I'm here with former Major League uh, outfield. I'm sorry, first baseman, outfielder, and manager Mike Hargrove. Now, as a player, obviously you, you had yourself a decent career. You know, you led the league in walks a couple times. Uh, you led the league in the strike shortened season of 1981 and on base percentage. But uh, you, you also, and, and I don't, I don't know if you if you feel this, but you were also involved in that in that uh, 10 cent beer night game. And I and I don't remember oh, yeah. the year. It's either what 77 or 78. Uh, one one of those years, where, yeah, yeah, when you were playing for Texas, uh, tell us a little yeah. bit about about being part of that game and a whole environment of that crazy night. Well, it was a crazy night. Uh, you know, I I uh, I had uh, you know obviously we we're coming into a hostile environment. We'd gotten into a brawl with Cleveland uh, the series before that back in Texas, and so the, the fans <laughs> the players weren't riled up, but the fans were. <laughs> Um, and uh, it just, you know, I bet I had 10 pounds of hot dogs thrown at me. I had a gallon jug, an empty jug of uh, Thunderbird wine thrown at me. Wow. Um, had people come out on the field. And, you know, it never was really scary until uh, until we got back into the dugout after all, you know, I, I don't know if thousands of fans came out on the field. It you know, almost felt like we were all standing uh, there at the pitcher's mound there at the end. Us and uh, the Indians players came out to help. Uh, and you almost felt like Tester in his last stand because all you saw were a wall of people running at you. And it didn't get scary until you got back up into the clubhouse and realized that uh, that it could have been, you know, somebody could have been seriously, seriously injured. Yeah, I tell and thank you. God that nobody was. Well, no, absolutely. And I tell you, there's a, you know, you talk about, you know, being involved in a bench clearing fight with the Indian just a couple weeks earlier. It's, it's kind of comes full circle in a situation like that. And all of a sudden, uh, the Indians who, you know, the t- team you're playing who are, are the enemies kind of all of a sudden become your allies in a situation like that. It's something that I'm sure no player on that field would have imagined happening what ended up happening. Well, no, you're, you know, you're probably right. Uh, but there is a bond even against competitors, even within competitors. And, uh, and I can honestly say had the Indians players not come out and help us, it could have, it could have gotten a lot worse than it was. So we were all very appreciative of the fact that, that uh, the Indians players came out and, and, and lended assistance. Yeah, no question about it. Once again, this is John Piel. I'm here with Mike Hargrove. Now, you know, you, you came in in the majors, and we're, we're kind of working our way backwards here, if you notice. But, uh, you know, when you, when you came up in 1974, of course, you end up winning the AL Rookie of the Year. And, uh, you know, tell us a little bit about your, your emergence and then your first chance to really play for, t- for the Texas teams of the, the mid-'70s. Well, I, you know, it, uh, I was a 25th-round draft pick of the Rangers back in 1972. I was a senior in college. And uh, played uh, a uh, half season at rookie rookie ball and a full season at A ball. Went to the Structural League, and and Billy Martin was the manager at that time. Then the owner Bob Short came down to Florida, and I had to have just a really really good day. Um, you know that day, but the year the year before in A ball, I, I hit 351. Was the only one in the league to hit over 300. But I had a really good day that day. Got an invitation to camp as a non-roster invitee and went in. I think they ended up hitting about 480, 486 in spring. Played a lot more than I thought that I would play. In fact, I was shocked when the first game we were playing and uh, and Billy put me in about the fourth or fifth inning to relieve uh, Jim Spencer. I was kind of his caddy that first month, month and a half. And, uh, and got you know, quite a bit of playing time and, and, and made the ball club. The uh, fact is, when Billy told me I'd made the ball club, it was on April 1st. We were in Houston playing the Astros in an exhibition game at the Astrodome. My wife was back home in Texas, uh, back at the Panhandle, Texas, uh, teaching. And so I called her on the phone and told her, and she said, uh, Mike, it's April 1st. I've had April 1st jokes all day long. She was teaching the fifth and sixth graders. So it took me a while to convince her that we really were going to be in the big leagues. And uh, we just, uh, I don't want to say it was a dream come true. But uh, but it may be the most exciting thing that ever happened to me. You know, obviously up to that point, it was a, it was a good thing. Yeah, no question about it. Once again, this is John Piel. I'm here with Mike Hargrove. 
Now, you ended up leaving the, the Indians after the 1999 season as a manager, and you end up going over to the Baltimore Orioles. Uh, did, did you feel did do you feel maybe in hindsight that that was that was the best decision or was that something that you you know I don't, I don't remember did they did they end up letting you go that season or did you end up taking just taking a job no I think they the uh, the Indians uh, had a year left on my contract they they, uh, they let me go and about five days later I got a call from uh, Sid Thrift with the with the Orioles asking me to come in for an interview and, and so I did you know at that time the, the Orioles had a had a uh, club with you know, Rip, Cal Ripken and Jeff Conine and Brady Anderson and uh, Charles Johnson, Mike Messina. It was a good ball club. It was an old ball club. And we just, you know, first half we never really, really got it going. And we ended up trading most of those guys at the uh, at the All-Star break and brought in a lot of young players and, and uh, started a rebuilding process. And I stayed there from 2000 through 2003. I was off the field. In 2004, worked as a special assistant with the Indians in 04, and was hired by the uh, by the Seattle Mariners in the winter of 04, and uh, was there till, till through 07. Yeah, no question about it. Now, as, as you as you move on there, and obviously you get a chance to see something different because you know, when you when you were rebuilding with the Indians, it seems like it was going in a positive direction. How 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 was how was the difference between playing for a team that was rising to a team that was kind of going back to kind of breaking things down and, like, rebuilding totally in Baltimore? Well, I've done that with the Indians. In, in uh, 1992, after my first spring training managing for the Indians, uh, we went from a $37 million payroll the first day of spring training to the end of spring training. We were down to $8 million payroll. So wow. I've been in that situation before. It's not a lot of fun. But you readjust your sights. You readjust your goals and realize that, that uh, there are positive things that you can take out of it and build toward. There's a certain amount of excitement and expectations that come with those situations that make them very rewarding and, and uh, that's where we started with the with the Orioles. It just never you know, it never it didn't happen the way it did with the Indians but we but we were able to, to see uh, some good players come through Baltimore and I thought that the uh, owner of Baltimore, Mr. Angels, was a tremendous owner. Uh, and uh, and I don't think there was ever anything that I asked him for that he didn't try to he didn't either provide or try to provide. So, uh, you know, I enjoyed my time in Baltimore. It's a great baseball town, and it's uh, got a lot of history and tradition, and that was fun to be around. Absolutely, man. Listen, Mike, I want to thank you for having some time today. I appreciate you being part of the show. Hopefully I could touch base with you sometime in the near future. You bet, John. Sounds good. Hey, take care, man. That was Mike Hargrove, former manager of the Indians, Orioles, Mariners.